Welcome to the Triage Method podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Paddy, how are you this week? I am absolutely, positively fantastic. It was beautifully sunny today. The weather is getting better. Like This won't be out for another week or so, but still, absolutely phenomenal last week for, for you guys listening to this. And that always puts me in a good mood. You know, you start seeing some... Uh, daffodils coming up because it's spring you know start seeing a few more flowering plants and stuff it's fucking good like you know life just feels good when nature is you know doing nature shit yep there was good weather today the sun was shining i went for a lovely long jog and yeah i mean you know it's good and i do apologize if my audio is maybe of a slightly lower quality i'm not using my mic i'm at home in kerry um but yeah i'm at home in kerry on placement for the next two weeks so that should be exciting and today what we're going to do is talk a bit about the brain um and its relationship to the body and the environment and most importantly obesity so we're going to talk about the neurobiology of obesity and hopefully do so in a way that is applicable and understandable for the end user um, the trainee in the gym, the personal trainer, the person trying to navigate the food environment, etc., rather than telling you the specific role of the nucleus of solitary, the solitary tract or the ventral tegmental area, and talking about the difference between D1 and D2 dopamine receptors and all these things. These are all very important components. All the neurochemistry is incredibly important to food regulation, appetite regulation, the desire for food, and the response to food triggers and cessation of eating, etc. But it doesn't necessarily tell you what you can do, nor does it tell you how that functions at the bigger picture, for example, at the population level, or at the individual level, when you're walking in um, to a store and deciding what you're going to buy, or your portion sizes, etc. So we'll try to, to zoom in, but hopefully then zoom out again and, and keep things applicable. Yeah, see, like I know the two of us, like I know you in particular do like your old uh, neuroanatomy in particular. Um, and I obviously, you know, I like biochemistry. I wouldn't have got a degree in it otherwise. However, I actually think that stuff is less interesting than the end outcome of it. You know, like I don't care what is actually happening at the receptor level. I don't care what is actually happening at the, you know, different area of the brain. I care how that actually influences your actions and how that actually influences, you know, for us as practitioners, like coaches, like how that actually influences how we think about this stuff, how we conceptualize it and how we actually interact with this issue that's clearly plaguing society. Like we have an obesity epidemic, you know, it's not like, like something's going wrong and the current level of thinking that has, you know, been predominant up to this point has clearly not been beneficial for helping with this issue. So while I do agree that we definitely need to dig in deeper and I really appreciate the people that actually do the research in this area at the end of it all, I kind of like, okay, that was interesting to read about. I enjoy that. But the, the listener of like a podcast like this or the person that's actually looking to know what to do and how to think about this stuff, it's kind of less, less important, you know, like that's in my mind at least. And before I get stuck in, do you have anything else to say, Gary? Yeah, I might do a quick overview of some of the brain stuff that's relevant, not in detail, but just to, 
to, to outline what we're talking about, a, a ge geographical exploration of the brain and its relationship. Here. Just before you get stuck into that, I'm just going to say, just to keep this really on track, because I know when we start digging into this, this can get lost in translation or whatever you want to say. Um, like obesity or overweightness or an excess of fat, whatever words you want to use, because I know there's a lot of conversation these days about what, like, is obesity a bad word, which we might do a podcast on. Um, like ultimately like obesity or overweightness or whatever you want to call it is caused by an excess of calories and or a deficit of activity, you know, and we would argue that there's probably a much larger role to play be being played by the increase in calorie consumption in the diet. You know, like people are not, even though there is a, a reduction in activity overall, you would assume based on, you know, we have more sedentary lives. We watch TV more. We don't like walk to work or you don't do whatever. Like ultimately people still move around every day. It's not like on a population level, everyone's, you know, only burning hundred calories per day. Like people are still active, you know, now could they be more active? hundred percent. So we would argue that something has changed in the food environment and, or the way people conceptualize food or think about food, which again, comes back to this brain stuff. And um, that has been leading to people over consuming food, right? So that's something that you need to keep in mind as we go through this stuff, because whenever you get into like deep science, whenever you start reading this, like you can get down some, you know, fairly deep rabbit holes and be like, oh, this is the thing this, I've discovered something, you know, whatever. Especially when we're in this weird area between like metaphysics, meta psychology, meta philosophy, and like, neuro like brain stuff like you can kind of be like oh this completely dissociated from the actual reality of the situation in front of you you know so just keep that in mind like this is still a calories in calories out argument however we have to understand why there is this overconsumption of calories you know that's that's what we need to answer yes sir and i think understanding the neurobiology but not necessarily understanding all the specifics but recognizing its role in the regulation can be incredibly helpful because it adds that extra layer of nuance to the understanding of calories in calories out because what we have to realize is that that calories in calories out outcome whether you're in a calorie deficit or a calorie surplus is fundamentally the result of your activity behavior and your eating behavior which is regulated to some degree um, by the brain and the nervous system and its interaction with the rest of the body which is affected by your overall environment and hence we have to understand that mediating role so there's kind of three areas roughly in the brain that, that, that become quite relevant here when it comes to, to eating behavior so you've got the brain stem which is at the bottom of your brain you could describe it as being a little bit more primitive has a, has really important roles but generally the deeper you get into the brain it's it's it serves more primitive functions like the regulation of breathing rather than higher order cognitive processes and it does also play a role um, in things like feeding behavior gastric emptying um, metabolic rate etc so it receives information from the periphery um, for example, through the vagus nerve. So you, you can get the vagus, the vagus nerve, which is a, a parasympathetic nerve, taking information from the gut. So it lines the gut and it brings that back to the brain. Okay. And um, so the brainstem is one layer. And then above, above that, again, you've got 
a couple of other important areas. So you've got the hypothalamus, which is really important. And you'll often hear of the hypothalamus in discussions of eating behavior because it's basically a center at which many different peripheral signals can act. So that includes things like adiposity signals. So in, in previous podcasts, we've discussed um, leptin and insulin were two things that we discussed. And they're hormones that are um, regulated slash released to some degree um, by uh, body fat um, or are affected by the, the amount of fat that that person carries, okay? So that can then affect the hypothalamus and as a result affect your your eating behavior um, or your energy expenditure and this also goes for other things like uh, gastrointestinal peptides so you've got peptides that are actually within um your within your gut that respond to food cues or respond to the presence of certain nutrients and as a result can send that information up to the brain to say you know, we're actually satiated. There's a lot of nutrients here we're actually taken care of. So you've got this kind of gut-brain axis that acts in such a way that we're able to sense uh, from our stomach and from our um, gut generally, so other areas of the gut, like the small intestine, to send back that information to the brain to, to let us know what's there, um, even though we might be aware consciously of what we've eaten. Okay, so you might be consciously tracking your calories or whatever, you might know what's there, but the signal could still vary depending on the composition of that meal, whether it had more protein or more fiber, or was it just a high carbohydrate, high fat meal? Was it McDonald's? Was it ice cream? Whatever. These things affect the way that those signals are going to be sent to the brain, and as a result, that affects our satiety response. And this is why, or some of the reasons why, things like just tracking calories but not caring about what you eat at all just doesn't tell you the whole story, okay? And then you've also got um, ghrelin, which is another really important um, hormone here that you'll hear um, discussed in, in discussions around eating behavior, because essentially what leptin does is leptin basically tells the brain or leads to satiety basically so you're you're more full if you're getting an effective signal from leptin in obesity you can become a little bit resistant to that signal so the hypothalamus doesn't register it in the same way because as you gain more body fat what happens is you you do release more insulin because it's or more leptin rather because it's released from body fat but you become a little bit more resistant to that signal. So because it's constantly coming, it's constantly being sent, you're not as responsive to it, okay? So that's why um, leptin isn't leading to that, that excess of satiety in obesity. And then ghrelin is basically the opposite of that where ghrelin is going to increase um, to tell you or your brain um, or certain feeding areas that uh, you should eat because we're hungry, you know? So ghrelin would be, um, its, re its release would be stalled when you have a big meal, okay? So that again is kind of playing uh, that role of, of checks and balances. So these different compounds interact with each other or interact with the brain in such a way that, that the, the hunger signals are going to increase if you haven't eaten for a while and the satiety signals are going to increase when you eat again, okay? And the, the, a really important thing to understand here is that between the brainstem and the hypothalamus, um, you've, got these, you've got these connections there as well. So there's interplay between all these different areas, as well as with an area that's quite important, which is the mesolimbic uh, reward pathway. And this is basically what people m might 
colloquially refer to it as as the dopaminergic system. So when people say, you know, oh, dopamine reward, like that's kind of like the meme when people talk about like reward, they talk about dopamine. And this is basically one of those kind of key areas uh, responsible uh, for that dopaminergic signaling. And as a result, the reward that we get from food. So this is really, really important because um, not only is dopamine involved in reward, but also like pleasure and motivation to some degree too. So when we talk about, when we start to talk about the neurobiology of obesity, a lot of talk gets, or, or a lot of people will discuss the hypothalamus and the hunger signals and all these sorts of things. And that would be fantastic if we operated like a machine and it was just once you had your energy needs met, everything was sorted. But the reality is that human motivation, the desire for pleasure, the desire for reward is also intrinsically linked um, with uh, feeding behavior. Okay. So one of the areas responsible for that or, or, or involved in that would be the ventral tegmental area. I mentioned it previously. You don't have to remember that. It sends off signals to other areas like the nucleus accumbens. You'll come across that if you've read um, things related to reward and motivation, etc. But fundamentally, what we're talking about here is that overall dopamine system. So you do have to really remember that that is part of this whole process because sometimes in the fitness industry, what can happen is if you if you're very very into fitness you know you might view yourself as just a pure machine and you eat purely for a certain purpose but the vast majority of people don't think of food in that way and what motivates us to eat is not purely the calorie and macronutrient numbers okay and this is where things do get more challenging i think that this this reward and pleasure element makes everything more challenging because you can have for example, you can have a certain like genetic variations in the way that this dopamine system behaves, and this can be affected in the case of obesity then, which could make you um, a little bit less responsive uh, to the same um, meal that you've eaten or the same t uh, palatability of a meal. So me and Patty could eat the same meal, but we might get different levels of pleasure from that. So that might lead me to try and make that meal more rewarding by adding more mayonnaise or adding more cheese or, you know, sprinkling on more sugar or whatever, because I'm not actually getting the same response to the meal that he is, despite the fact that our energy needs are the same, the foods that we like are the same overall, but it's actually not registering at the level of the brain in the same way. So this is a really important thing to understand because sometimes you can kind of get a sense of like, almost like moral superiority, because you think that you're better able to control your desires than everyone else. But the reality is that you may actually just have a different response. Like you may not be actually doing anything better as such. And as we move into that conversation, this is where things become more philosophically challenging than they do the neurobiologically challenging as such, because we know that these variations differ between people. We can try to understand the, the responses to food, etc. But when we start to talk about responsibility and whether or not you're you know exerting your will etc that's where things start to get very very messy and the specific take that you take that you um, take on board or adopt on those issues can actually affect the way that you behave as a result and potentially make your life better or worse so 
that's that's the more challenging part of this conversation i think yeah and the the one it always always messes with my head when i try to think this stuff through in, in terms of like let's use that same example you use there where it's like you have two individuals me and you right and we eat the same meal same calories macros mouthfeel exact same meal right but my response to that is i enjoy it more right i'm like oh that was an absolute phenomenal meal like i really enjoyed it right and you're just kind of like oh yeah it was okay there's two ways you can go from that right that can lead down there's more than two ways in multiple paths right that could lead me as the one that enjoyed that meal a lot to overeat on that food you know i could be in that position where i'm like oh look i actually really love that food so i'm going to eat more of it because it's something that i really love right but at the same time i could eat that and have really like a lot of enjoyment from it and not need any more as a result you know whereas you might go like oh i didn't get enough enjoyment from that meal Mm, i I kind of want something extra on top of that so you end up eating more calories you know so this stuff it just becomes really muddy really murky you know there's no like clear answer in terms of like you could isolate it down to like oh you have this one receptor difference in this percentage or ratio of these receptors versus these receptors and that's going to lead you to like enjoy fatty foods more or you have these genes that make you enjoy fatty foods more or whatever it is like even though that might be the case like how you actually then respond to that like it can still be completely different than even someone that has those same receptors those same you know whatever it is whatever we're, we're saying is the the, the cause and this, we'll come back to this because that's kind of like uh generally it's kind of called like biological determinism and then we'll come back to that later in this discussion but it really just it's so hard to kind of wrap your head around all the potential ramifications of these different things right but you brought up something that's really interesting here in terms of like we basically start trying to understand this stuff and we come to a roadblock in terms of the question that then gets asked right and this is actually like we're not going to answer this on the podcast right but we're going to try flesh out some things around it and this is like do you actually have free will or does free will actually exist right because if it all comes down to like neuroanatomy neurochemistry and you know how your brain reacts and how it, how it works like are you just a victim of whatever brain you were given you know or whatever brain you have you know, like that, that's eventually where you kind of go to. And this becomes a, a thing of like, okay, if you're influenced just by what happens with your brain and like the majority of brain stuff is unconscious, you know, it's not, you're not in conscious control of it, like, or it doesn't even register consciously. Like, do you actually have free will? Like we kind of think of free will as a conscious construct, if you will, like where you like, we think things through logically, we were rational human beings, etc. And um, but like ultimately the unconscious stuff is the more important stuff. Like the way I always conceptualize it is like the conscious stuff. That's the stuff that your brain is like, okay, you can be a little bit creative over here and you know, fucking finger paint on the wall while I actually take care of the fucking important stuff. Like, you know, making sure your heart beats and making sure you breathe and you know, all that stuff that's like really complexly regulated. Like, could you imagine having to consciously regulate your heartbeat or consciously regulate your breathing or your sexual function or any of that kind of stuff, right? Like it would be impossible. Well, it wouldn't be impossible. I'm sure like, again, if we had evolved to do that, it would be you know possible, but it would be exhausting, right? So your brain is like, here, you know what? Let's actually make this consciousness where you can fucking think about 
random shit and have some fun right and like maybe that might result in some beneficial things like i don't know like modern civilization etc um but like that's it's like yeah like there's some higher order thinking we'll call it even though it's not necessarily true but like just conscious thinking right um but that's the less important stuff however this really does open up this can of worms of these like philosophical questions that you know a lot of people don't really tackle with and like i remember when i was like you know started reading like philosophy when i was like 16 15 16 and i didn't have the cognitive framework first of all to be able to answer these questions or even get to grips with them and as someone who is 29 and i still don't think i have the cognitive capabilities or thought process to get the grip with them so like i don't know if you ever can truly answer these questions and as a result we're not going to answer these questions on this podcast right however we can open this kind of worms in regard to obesity right and i just want to go through a few different things so that we can kind of start tying together as i said like this the neuro stuff is really interesting when you read it right and obviously they have like weird names for different areas of the brain and you know you're kind of like you can get lost in that stuff but like when you start thinking of like what does that actually mean down the line then we can start having a bit more fun with this right so when you think about it like are your decisions around what you eat purely a function of your free will like are you making those decisions yourself right if you ask anyone on the street the vast majority of people would say yeah i make the decisions around what i eat right but that's your conscious brain thinking it has more control over the unconscious stuff than you know the unconscious stuff would give it credit for right um, and we'll kind of get through that in a second but what are your thoughts on that so far gary in terms of like are you in control of your food choices you know if you like if i was to ask you 10 years ago versus ask you now do you think you have a different perspective yeah i mean <laughs> the challenge here is is that when you say do you have control over your food <laughs> Who, who is you like this is this is the problem with discussing this topic is that when we start to talk about this you actually run into real philosophical roadblocks that you kind of can't come over or overcome and many people have tried and and many arguments fall flat in their face to be honest and this is why i think religious explanations are just easier sometimes because yeah it's just the divine just the god of the gaps just wherever we run into these roadblocks just say yeah it's god but but no in all seriousness because like your sense of self and 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 my conception of 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 the causes of the words that are coming out of my mouth that's fundamentally an emergent property rather than something that we can attribute to any one single area of the brain and this is where things start to become a bit challenging because that kind of self, the sense, the sense of self does not necessarily exist anywhere. It's part of my whole being. And that can't necessarily be reduced to the level of the brain. Uh, that would be like just a total reductionist approach because um, if, as, as we've just discussed, the gut is intrinsically linked with uh, things like the brainstem um, and, and the hypothalamus, etc., um, and the, the feedback that's coming from my hands now, all of that nervous system information, it's all coming back uh, to the brain. And as a result, I, I can't not be affected by what's happening at other areas of, of my body because I wouldn't be able to hold this conversation that I am right now if someone came in and 
hit my toe with a hammer, you know? So, and the over that overall kind of sense of self and your will as such is, is something that is, is almost it, it's inside, but outside your body <laughs> in some ways, because it's emergent. And as we begin to, to discuss the concept of, of, of free will and your voluntary choice over your food choices, I think that there's a, there's a spectrum here of somewhat correct answers because I don't think anyone could hold a position that you have 100% choice over um, the foods that you eat. Okay. Because you are absolutely um, affected deeply by your environment. Okay. Because like, for example, I came home to Kerry this evening and I had not decided what I was going to have um, for my dinner. And the, my mom has cooked dinner for me. I'm not, I, I know there was steak cooking, but I'm not entirely sure. And do I have the voluntary choice to go down and say, actually, I don't want that? Like, to some degree, yes. But what's the most likely option? The most likely option is that I'm going to have that because it's prepared for me. And the same thing happens in, for example, your workplace cafeteria. You absolutely have the choice uh, to you know, get different foods, but you're only, you're, you only have access to what is there. So as a result, most people are going to be eating what is there, okay? And there might, it might be the case that you could have prepared a packed lunch or there's actually a much healthier place, just a 10 minute walk away, but what's more likely? It's more likely that you're probably gonna get the cafeteria lunch like everyone else. So although um, you can say that, yes, there's some degree of at least the illusion of voluntary control over my food choices, the reality is that the environment is deeply affecting them all of the time. And while some people may, in certain circumstances, like if there's a, um, a certain sense of urgency, for example, preparing for a bodybuilding competition, there's a sense of urgency, there's an end point, there's a 12-week period that I need to really knuckle down. There's that extra motivation to be able to, in those conditions, um, to maybe override the environmental cues. But the reality is that, like, your, your food choices are affected by decisions that are made at the level of multinational corporations a lot of the time, okay? You see that with the homogeneity of the, of the Western diet. There's, there's a, a diet that is um, in the West and gradually spreading across the world that's more or less the same. Like, yeah, if you go to McDonald's in, in China or you go to McDonald's in America, there's slightly different things in the menu. There's slightly different things in Sweden. There's slightly different things in Ireland. But overall, they're roughly the same. And that's the same with regards to Coca-Cola products or products from Mars and all the companies that they own that produce chocolate bars, et cetera. All of those things um, are, are determined by multinational corporations. And they're the things that you see when you go into the store. And that information is being sent from the aisle that when you walk into Tesco, the front aisle, I can see it now, you know, five for two euro, whatever. That information is being sent. Uh, you're seeing it. Um, through your eyes, it's being sent into, in, into your brain and you're interpreting that in some way. You're making an evaluation. That evaluation is intrinsically linked with the economic conditions of your country, which again is not necessarily the result of your will. So that five for two euro, I'm appraising that information. You know, is this good value? Do I have two euro? Um, what could I use five for? Okay, I've got five kids. Um, all of these things start to, to, to then... Um, lead to a certain decision that's being made that's not necessarily purely 
nutritional aren't you know and um, because that could have that five for two euro could have been placed at the back of the store in the right hand corner right next to the emergency exit and you may never have seen it so your desire or the your desire coming into the store could have been the same or, or to purchase that product could, could have been the same in the two conditions but it was totally uh, modified based on where those things were placed and that's seen all the time um, in, in different studies related to, to marketing, for example, like supermarkets do this on purpose. They know that your behavior can be manipulated. So as a result, certain products are placed in different areas. You rarely ever walk into a store and see all the fruits and vegetables immediately in front of you, That it doesn't really happen. Okay. Um, and, and I think it's very hard to come out of all that and to say, I'm 100% in control. You know, I, I absolutely have full control. Now, whether or not you can actually decide anything, the bigger kind of free will question, I think is um, more challenging because fundamentally you just end up at this position where th there's always like a proximal cause and you, you end up philosophizing about what it means for something to cause something and what is the self. And We're getting ahead of ourselves. We can get back to this at the end. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go this, ahead. This, this, we, need, we need to cover some other things before we get to this, right? Um, but yeah, like what you said, like the, to even answer this question, we've run into multiple roadblocks, right? Because again, like you said, like who, who are you? Like again, we have this, this thought process as if our brain is us, you know, or some people feel like it's their heart. Like again, it depends on your culture, et cetera, right? Um, but like, that's because like, it's, it's like thinking the, the bus service is purely the depot of the bus. You know, it's like, oh, just because the bus has always come back to this depot, like that must be the entirety of the bus service. You know, when in reality, it's not. They do far more functions to that. There's stuff going in and out all the time, right? Um, and that's like your brain is the bus depot. Just because everything goes back to it and it's interpreted and whatever else, like that doesn't mean that that's the entirety of your being. Like you are more than just that, right? Um, but anyway, look, that's, we need to get back on track with this, right? So uh, under controlled circumstances, right? In a lab setting, for example, like diets always work, right? In terms of like, if they're set up correctly, they obey the laws of thermodynamics. Diets always work, right? Like in terms of, if you want a fat loss diet, get someone in a calorie deficit, they'll lose weight, right? So we know the fundamentals of a diet in terms of like calories in, calories out. And that's the way most people think of it and conceptualize it because that's so easily provable, right? However, you also have to contend with the fact that on all of these diets that worked in the lab setting, when you send these people back out into the real world, you know, the free world, we'll call it, they fuck it up, right? They go back to their old patterns, their old behaviors, their old habits, whatever. And they're off the diet then, right? They're not on the same trajectory they were on when they were on the diet in this lab setting, right? So we have to contend with the fact that as soon as we introduce freedom into the equation, most people don't stay on track, if you want to use those words, right? Like they don't stick with this diet that they know works, right? You could have someone that's like, oh, I've always wanted to be leaner. I've always wanted to be healthier, whatever. Um, but diets have always failed for me, right? And you can bring them into a lab, literally get them into like a metabolic ward, put them in there for 12 weeks, get them phenomenal results in those 12 weeks because you're literally monitoring every single thing that they do, right? And they'll finally be like, well, actually, I can get results. Here are the phenomenal results I got, right? And then as soon as you give them freedom again, the wheels fall off the wagon, right? And there's two things to this. First of all, a lot of times there's no sustainability aspect built into these diets, right? And like, that's something that we have to contend with when we're coaching people. Like we have to think about 
the longer term. You know, it's not just like, like we sign people up for a 90 day program, right? Like I don't want to just think like, Oh, 90 days, you got great results. Fuck off. And I know because the research is pretty clear on it, that you're going to be at the back end of that, not being able to stick to that. If we don't build in a sustainability, like maintenance type, whatever to the diet. Right. And so that's the first thing with them. Right. But also if we just focus on the calories in calories outside of things, like we do miss the fact that we are humans. There's more to us than, like you said, machines. And it's just an input output type of deal going on. Like there is more, more messiness, right? More biology, if you will. Right. Um, And that is something that we have to contend with. And again, we run up to multiple questions and multiple barriers that people that are far smarter than both of us combined have tried to think through and haven't been able to. Um, And again, they become philosophical questions rather than like a a nutrition question or a biology question or whatever. Um, And as a result, like nutritional science has kind of fails to get the grips with these questions. And as a result, us as a society kind of fails to address the key points, the key issues with this. And this is the kind of thing that I always kind of think, I always call it like the, the paradox of freedom. Like if you're free to choose, right? That means you're free to make bad decisions. And that's, that's kind of the trade-off. Like if you are a sheep, you know, and like, I know, I don't mean like sheep as an actual, the actual animal, animal, well, I kind of do, but in terms of like what people go, oh, you're a sheep, you know, it's like you're sheeple or whatever, you know, like you're just a follower, right? It's so easy to live your life. You know, you don't actually have to think. You don't actually have to have free will because someone will guide you, you know? And this someone, this something, entity, whatever, you know, that could be a benevolent overlord or it could be, you know, a malicious individual or individuals or groups or whatever. And But most people are actually happier that way because then at least they always feel like they have no responsibility. They're completely exempt right? They don't have to take the responsibility for their actions because they actually never had a choice over their actions ever, right? But as many wars have been fought over this and much moral uh, contemplation and thought has gone into this, um, we've pretty much all agreed across societies that slavery is wrong, right? And that's effectively what I'm discussing there, where it's like, oh, everyone kind of wants to be a slave, where it's like someone else make all decisions. Like even just think about you and your partner trying to decide where to eat. Like neither of you kind of wants to make the decision. You kind of want someone else to just outsource it. You're like, oh, I've been busy in work today. Like just tell me what you, where you want to eat and we'll go or whatever. And they're kind of like, oh, I don't really want to make the decision. I don't know. Like no one wants to take on that responsibility willingly, right? But also no one wants the alternative, which is you get fed gruel because you have a slave master because you're a slave, (laughs) you know? So it's like, we're in this real weird like paradox where we want the best of all worlds in terms of like, we want someone else to be making the decisions, but also we don't want, we like, we want to be able to go against those decisions when possible. Right. And when you start analyzing that a little bit more, right. If you ask, Again, like let's just use the food as the example because that's what we're talking about here. Like if you ask most people like who is in control of their food intake, they will say it is them. But as you've just touched on there, and we're going to touch on now in a second, um, realistically, the environment and let's say those who are running the environment. Now, I'm not some like, you know, conspiracy theorist 
theorist and thinking like, you know, there's a committee somewhere, I don't know, in the Swiss Alps, for example, or something that are like, let's decide how societies should be run. You know, like, that's not what I'm saying. However, what I am saying is like, there are people that are trying to either maximize profit or trying to move society in a certain direction that they want, or, you know, they have their own goals, ambitions, whatever, and they help to craft the environment, right? But ultimately, like the environment shapes us a lot more, or sorry, I should say shapes our choices a lot more than we would like to give that credit. And that is something that you have to contend to in your entire life. And also it brings in some really fascinating and hard to get to grips with uh, moral questions in terms of like, if you don't believe people have free will, you know, why would you give them, I don't know, say social welfare, for example, if you know that they're just going to make bad choices with that money, you know, because people will do that. They'll say like, oh, people are obese because of their socioeconomic status. But then if that's the case and you're saying that these people are too stupid or whatever you want to think too stupid to make their own decisions about their food choices, then are they too stupid to deal with the free money that they potentially get from, you know, a social welfare program? Like you have to get the grips of these questions. And I'm not saying I have the answers. I'm just saying that it starts raising these questions. And that's something that is really hard to, to, I know, wade through, you know, you have to kind of like, it's just thick, muddy, murky water. And it's not, there's no clear answers with this. And well, I'd love to say that I had them. I clearly don't, right? But to illustrate this a bit more and then bring it on to what these kind of things are like overarchingly called in terms of like priming, um, there's a few things that really help to illustrate just how much is out of your control, right? Just how much is not your free will to actually, you know, it's not free will. It's actually just the environment that is completely shaping you, even though it gives you the illusion of free will because on the surface, again, going back to the brain, you, excuse me, you kind of go, oh, well, I consciously made that decision. And when you think about it, like I'm saying words now, like I don't really know the words I'm going to say, even though my, my brain has created this kind of thought narrative, this line or whatever, this, this, this train of thought, if you will, right? Like I don't really, that's not fleshed out until it actually comes out of my mouth, right? And like, where did those thoughts come from? Like if you ask them in that, like they don't know, like no one knows where their thoughts come from, even though we have like, you know, basic general idea of like different fucking neurons firing, et cetera. Like where do thoughts come from? Are thoughts actually your own? Like, did you come to those thoughts completely independently of the environment around you, other people's influences, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, like realistically you didn't you know you're you're a product of your culture you're a product of the stuff that you've consumed like if you spend all day on i don't know tiktok like you're going to be influenced by that even on a subconscious level and i would argue that you're going to be influenced on that on a subconscious level or an unconscious level way more than you are going to consciously think you're being influenced right and but again just to bring this back to the food discussion like who decided on a portion size Right. And I mean, actually, like, think about that. Don't just listen to me say that and go, oh, yeah, well, who did that? Right. I mean, like, actually think that through in terms of like you go into a shop, like who decided on the portion size of a packet of crisps, for example. Right. Or a chocolate bar or whatever. Right. Like who decided on that? Um, again, it was just that's the environment that you found yourself in. Like you feel like you want to have a little bit of chocolate. It's not like the chocolate is in these like handy single serve um, whatever packages 
no, they're in a chocolate bar and you're going to go, oh, I want chocolate. So I'm going to buy the whole chocolate bar. And then you end up eating the whole chocolate bar. So you might have had free will in terms of making the decision to buy chocolate, but because the portion size was a certain size, uh, dictated by purely the environment, like the it's out of your control. Now all of a sudden you're just eating a whole chocolate bar. And again, you could say, oh, well, I exercise my free will to restrain myself from eating that whole chocolate bar. But that's just the, the imp, like the impact of a, a chocolate bar. But like think about it in other things in terms of like restaurant serving sizes, for example. You know, like you order a burger and chips, right? And you're like, oh cool, I just want like a burger chips, right? Like you don't know how lean was that burger meat like the the mince meat like how how lean was it was it the 95 percent lean mince that they were using definitely not it was 80 20 you know and so all of a sudden you're like oh well you didn't influence that but it was the what you were served right and again you can make better choices in the restaurant but still i'm talking about the serving size like how many chips do they actually give you you know like like is it a like why does two people order I don't know, like I weigh like 100 kilos. My girlfriend weighs like 50 kilos, right? But we go into a restaurant and we're served the same serving sizes, you know? Like I actually usually end up eating half of hers, so it's fine. But um, you know what I mean? Like it's this year we're given the same serving sizes. The restaurant has just decided that, right? But you can't just blame the restaurants because when we also self-serve, we end up being influenced by these other ideals. Like again, like you've gone to a restaurant once, you see what a, a serving size of, you know, burgers and chips looks like. So then when you're serving yourself at home, you kind of go, oh, that's roughly what I should be serving myself, you know, or you, you start thinking like that in terms of you're like, that's what it should look like on a plate. That's the ideal, this image of uh, burgers and chips, you know, it's like, that's how much I should be eating, right? And that's influenced by the media, the whatever. Like if you've never had this meal before and you've only ever seen people on TV eat it, for example, like you can't say that you're not influenced by that, you know? Um, but then also it's like, who made the plate sizes, the bowl sizes, right? So you're like, oh, I'm going to make a, a meal for myself at home. Like you still put it out on these plates that were bought in, I don't know, Ikea or something that is just generic. And who decided on that? And you're like, oh, well, you have to fill up my plate. You know, that's, that's how I know how much food to eat, right? Again, like that's, is that free will? Like, did you, was that your free will to dictate the plate size? No, it was the environment, right? And again, you can always come back to these arguments and say like, oh, it's your free will to not fill up the plate to its fullest, or it's your free will to buy smaller plates or whatever. But again, it's like, that's not reality, right? Like, you're not consciously thinking like, oh, I'm actually going to have to buy smaller plates because I actually, you know, I'm going to diet for two or three months of the year, you know, to get leaner for summer or whatever. Like, you're not thinking like that. Like, no one thinks like that, right? But then also, like you said earlier on, like who decided on like the positioning of the hyperpalatable goods in a shop? Like, did you decide that? No. If they weren't there, you probably wouldn't have bought them. You know, there's a reason like you go into, I don't know, pennies or some clothes shop and all of a sudden you're going to pay at the checkout and they have sweets, they have sugary bits, they have whatever. Because they're like, they know that that's, you're going to be influenced to purchase those. Like they've done their market research. They know that people are going to buy that stuff when it's easily accessible. They're just standing in the line and it's like, oh yeah, actually yeah, I just grabbed that, you know? Um, like the, you didn't consciously decide that. That's not your free will, right? It's being influenced. You're being manipulated, right? And it's a subconscious thing or an unconscious thing, right? Um, but like you also touched on there, it's like who decided on like 
the perceived savings you get from a share size packet versus a single serve packet. You know, like I put a deal on like, oh, like you said, you know, five for two euro or whatever it is, or a two for one offer or whatever. Like you went in, you're like, oh, I just want to get one, you know, and they do this on alcohol as well, or at least they used to. Um, they'd be like, oh, you, you want to get like one beer or whatever. Like, I don't know who anyone who just drinks one beer, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like, oh, I just wanted to get one beer, right? But they're like, oh, it's two for one. So you buy two. Do you think you're just going to be like, oh, I'll save that for another day? No, you're, just, you're going to drink the two, you know? Or again, you're going to eat the two packets of crisps or you're going to do whatever. It's like, no, this this ultimately, you end up eating that. Or again, like even if you don't eat the two of them on the same day, like again, you buy I know, two for one on Doritos. You're just like, oh, this is my treat for the week. You know, I wanted to, you know, I've been working hard. You know, I've had a busy week. I just want to eat something nice. You see, oh, two for one Doritos. Really like Doritos. Like, yeah, actually, I'm going to get a packet of those. Two for one though, might as well get the two packets, right? And like what might've been like a, a single event in a month where you're just like, oh, I would add a little bit off track. I wanted a packet of Doritos. I've been really craving it for a while. And you know, busy week. And I just wanted to treat myself. Right. But now you have two packets of Doritos in the house. Right. And now it becomes next week. You're like, Oh, you know what? Actually I have that packet at home. I'm going to eat that as well. Right. When in reality, if you just bought one of them, maybe that was one of the, one packet of Doritos that would have served you for the next six months in terms of you would have had it. There's your craving gone. See you later. But now because you got two for one, it's in your house, you've already bought it. You've already spent the money on it. You know, you're going to eat it right? And again, is that your free will? Like, again, you can argue and go, oh, well, it's my free will to not pick up the two Doritos. I just want one. So I'm going to leave the other one in the store, even though it's two for one. You know, is that reality? Like, are you actually going to do that? No, because you have this perceived sense of saving where you're like, oh no, I've got, I've made a saving here. I'm making a kill. I'm getting one over on the fucking man. They don't even realize I'm making a killing here because I'm getting two for one, right? When they, they've already priced that into the cost, you know, like they don't care, you know? Um, and again, like you could say, oh, well, you can just give it to a friend or throw it out or whatever other free will argument you want to make. But again, we have to think about reality and you have to realize that like your neurobiology is being hacked. Like just like you can hack a computer, like the software in our brains or in our being or us, whatever we want to conceptualize that us can be hacked. Right. Um, and there's, there's loads of these, like your exposure to food, beverage advertising, like you're kind of feeling a little bit thirsty. Like we're coming into summer now and all of a sudden, like on all the bus stops, you'll start seeing like Coca-Cola advertising with like ice in a, in a glass. You'll hear that, you know, and it's like, you're like, mm, actually, you know what? It's really warm out. I would love a, a, a nice cold drink. Oh, Coca-Cola, is it? Yeah, actually, I wouldn't. I would actually love a Coca-Cola. You know, it reminds me of my youth and, uh, you know, oh, on a summer's day or whatever. You know, again, you start thinking these things. Those thoughts are not your own. They did not come from you. You were not, you did not wake up in the morning after a nice, lovely sleep and go, you know what I need? A Coca-Cola today. You know, like that, you weren't, until you saw that advertisement, you weren't thinking about that. Um, your peer group as well. Like we know like weight loss, for example, is much easier and much more effective in groups. Like it's shown in the research. But what's also shown in the research is like weight gain is easier in groups, you know? And again, did you choose your peer group? Like, is that, completely your willpower like is that oh or not even your willpower sorry your, your free will like is that your free will that dictated that you could say it is but like it was realistically your environment like these are the people that were just around you when you were growing up or you know you really clicked with this person and then they introduced you to these three other people and now you're a friend group or whatever you know it's like that's not really your free will and again you can always argue and say like oh well it's your free will to make better choices when you're with them but if they're saying like 
oh, we're going out to get a chipper or whatever. And you're like, nah, sorry, I'll go with you, but I'm not going to eat. Like they're just going to eventually stop bringing you with them because they're like, oh, well, you don't want chipper, you know? Um, so then you start excluding yourself. And again, is that your free will? No, it's your environment dictating your choices and in, in, impacting on your ability to be adherent to the diet that you want to be on or whatever, right? And, and again, loads of other ones, access to low satiety, high calorie foods, you know? Like again, like you live in a an area that they're just, they're just pumping out these stuff, you know? It's like in the shops, you, know, you don't have access to a nice supermarket. You have an access to a, a corner store that has, you know, chocolates, sweets, candies, that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, well, I have to get some sort of food. I'll just grab that. Or like we've discussed previously, you know, the only thing around you for food, you know, if you want something on the go quick is just a, a McDonald's or a Burger King or whatever. You're in a kind of food desert or rather a food swamp, you know? It's like, what's your choice going to be? You can either get that or you can just go hungry until you can make something healthy at home. You know, and again, you can always argue and be like, oh, well, you should have made something, you should have prepared. And like, that is definitely a strategy to overcome that stuff. But again, we have to think about not from the health and fitness individual's perspective that's thinking like, this is a strategy I could bring in. These people have never been exposed to that strategy. They don't know about that. So they're just going to make the choice that's easiest for them. Like you live, so you work in a, in construction and you're on the building site and you're in some random area that you, you know, you haven't been in before and you're just like, Oh, I want something quick and easy for lunch. Like, are you going to be like, Oh, I'm going to pack a nice sandwich or something. No, you're going to be like, Oh, I'm going to go with the lads to get a roll or, you know, I'm going to go to get McDonald's or whatever it is that's convenient around that area, you know? Um, again, the perceived convenience of on the go foods, you know, companies market their their products as great foods for on the go stuff again like it's like you know people do this in terms of like diners like in america for example like people won't eat breakfast at home because they're like oh i can just go down to the diner on my way to work and you know get a coffee get some eggs and whatever and you do that and you think you're making a nice healthy choice but you forget that the guy making your eggs just cares about them being tasty so he's like yeah lashing a bit of oil there you know a bit of butter and oh i'll put some avocado on that and all of a sudden you've now consumed like 2000 calories and it's your morning time and then you're also like oh well i heard on the radio that uh you know uh grabbing a starbucks you know mocha frappa whatever the fuck um is great. You know, they really keep you feeling fuller for longer. And I was actually really hungry the last few days, you know, uh, around lunchtime. So I'll grab one of them for lunch, you know, and again, there's another 800 calories or whatever amount in it. And they've marketed it as a like quick on the go food. Cause I know like stuff like McDonald's and stuff do, does that in terms of the, their milkshakes. They're like, let's market them to people that are on the rush to work. You know, I you know I personally couldn't think about it, like drinking a milkshake on my way to work in the morning, but like they market them like that because they want people to be like, this is a quick on the go food, grab your coffee, grab your milkshake. There you go. You're ready for work. You know? And again, like you didn't, that's not your free will. Like you could say it's your free will to do that. But again, you're just thinking like, I need to get to work. You know, I need to grab something on the go quick because you know, I live in a fast paced society. Right. And this is the thing. It's like, your free will kind of gets eroded by all these little micro things, right? Like it's not the big influences because that's what you think when people think about like the erosion of your free will. Like we use that same example of like people think of like slavery where it's like, oh, you're a slave. They're forcing you to do this thing. Like that's a big influence obviously, but it's not, they don't focus on the big influence stuff, right? They focus on the small influence stuff and allow that to like compound and add up over time right and this is a, a, the term usually used to refer to this stuff in the research and stuff is like priming right i'm just going to give a definition of it here like priming refers to cognitive processing of environmental stimuli that occurs automatically non-consciously 
and that has the propensity to evoke overt behavioral responses such as eating in humans, right? So like people, marketeer, marketers, we'll call them, right? Are designing their products, are designing the setups of their stores, are designing the environment to elicit the response that they want, which is for you to consume their products, right? And again, you can say like, this is capitalism is bad as a result. And it's not necessarily the case because you wouldn't be thinking that if the people doing this were like, I don't know, produce developers, like, you know, you were being influenced to eat apples and oranges and whatever else, you know, like say good, healthy food. But the fact of the matter is like these multinational corporations that know that they can make a huge profit on these like hyper palatable foods, like they're the ones that are going to spend more on a marketing budget. Right. And also the way that the, the food economy, we'll call it, is set up. Like, you know, a farmer is not selling you direct produce. You know, he's not selling you like, oh, here's your turnips that I grew the other day, you know? Like they're selling them to some bigger company, some middleman that's probably giving them a fucking shit deal on it as well. And then that middleman is buying it from fucking hundreds of other farmers as well. And as a result, they're like, we have a better budget for marketing this stuff. Right. But they're like, oh, we could also have a bigger budget if we sold these into these potatoes into making crisps or whatever. And we can market those and make a huge killing on it. Right. And so it's a really hard situation to discuss because like free will exists. There's no doubt about that. Right. It literally exists. Okay. I think most people would agree with that unless they're, yeah, unless they're not. Yeah, maybe some people wouldn't agree with it. Okay, but <laughs> I think free will definitely does exist, right? However, it can be eroded in ways that are not intuitive or non-obvious, you know? Like, we don't live in a clockwork universe, okay? So, like, you have to admit that free will exists, or at least what we would think of as free will exists, right? We like, It's not, like, Newtonian physics doesn't dictate the world, right? You're not able to go, like, I'm going to push away this object and it's going to interact with these atoms and it's going to push away this other object and you're going to be able to work out the exact course of all of that. Like that's not the way the universe works, right? Um, especially if you start getting into the quantum realm, but that's completely beside the point. Um, we're already talking too much fucking shit about philosophy and existential questions to get in before we get into the fucking quantum. But anyway, um, like determinism, which is what we're kind of, contrasting these two thought processes in terms of like free will versus determinism, right? Like, are you, is it always just, we'll call it fate. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you're just fated to do this. You're just determined. It's predetermined. You have no choice in it. Free will doesn't exist or free will exists, you know, like they're the kind of two dichotomies. Um, But determinism is like fundamentally unreconcilable with modern physics, right? Or at least in my estimation of it. Um, like our fate is not determined, you know? So we do certainly have free will. However, like biology, like most biology, it can be hacked, right? And there's two kind of thought processes with determinism, right? There's the biological thought processes or biological determinism, right? And that's kind of, oh, it's all about the hormones or the neuropeptides or the signaling molecules or whatever stuff, you know? It's like, it's your internal biology, right? And then there's also the environmental determinists, right? And biological determinists get way more hype because we kind of want to believe that there's this smoking gun, this kind of like um, 
a pathway or a hormone or a receptor or whatever it is, some sort of biological thing that's like, that's the reason that people are being influenced by, or that's the reason people are being influenced in their energy intake. And if we can target that pharmacologically or whatever, like we're in the money, we've made the fucking, we've cured the obesity epidemic. Uh, And they get more hype because of that. However, as we've just laid out there, I think most people would agree that uh, environmental determinism plays a much bigger role in terms of like your environment shapes your choices your environment shapes your ability to actually execute your free will and while yes your internal biology plays a huge role and i actually think it's just you know both biological and environmental determinists they get a lot right and but they start talking past each other rather than realizing that, oh, that works, that doesn't work, that makes sense. Um, but ultimately, I think the environmental, bi- or the environmental determinists get far more right in terms of this discussion around obesity and food intake than the biological determinists get right. Um, because it is ultimately your environment that is shaping your ability to execute your free will. And that's not a conversation that is easy to have because then what do you do? That can be really disempowering where it's like, you're just a victim of your environment. Oh, you were born into a lower socioeconomic status. You were born into a certain body. You were born into a certain environment overall. Sorry, bro. You're doomed. You're a victim now, you know? And that's that's not really empowering. But anyway, Gary, I've been talking a lot of shite. So uh, tell me your thoughts. Yeah, like fundamentally, I I just don't think that taking these some of these philosophical positions to the logical conclusion actually helps you in any way so i think that you're just you're actually just better off to to view these through the lens of like how can i actually help myself rather than worrying too much about the philosophy because like even if you took like if you take the the religious perspective here i actually think it makes you make better i think it makes you a better person because if you take the the approach and obviously people interpret these things differently but if you interpret genesis for example from the bible as right when um adam and eve uh, ate the forbidden fruit god basically punished them in some way with self-consciousness and as a result of that um the free will and responsibility for that that's actually quite powerful and i think that like that's often lost in the way that people would interpret that story, but there's a responsibility that emerges from self-conscious and there's a responsibility that emerges from acknowledging free will. And I think that we actually, and I think this, you actually see this um, emerge in lots of areas in, in ways that I think are worrying. And I'm sure you'd agree. For example, if we take determinism to its logical conclusion, as it relates to crime, for example, then we erode any sense of self or responsibility because we basically say that, well, if we can reduce you, someone shooting someone else or someone raping someone else down to a specific biological level and we can look at the genes in the brain, et cetera, then like, what do you actually do with that? I think this, lead, this, this can sometimes lead to um, an over, um, overconfidence with like, Uh, focus on like rehabilitation instead of actually punishing people who commit crimes so i think that that's one of the areas where you see this play out a little bit so you can see how this um, this kind of uh filters into 
or drips into different areas. And as it relates to like nutrition and your own life and the decisions that you make, I think it's really important to understand, like particularly for people into public health, it's important to appreciate the effect that the environment is having on people's behavior. But what I don't think, and we've talked about that in the previous podcast, but what I don't think is actually helpful is for you to erode your own sense of free will and just say, oh, well, everything's determined by the environment and my biological circumstances. So like, why would I do anything? Because that, that thought in and of itself, if you believe in determinist, determinism, is kind of self-eroding because clearly that's a product of determinism as well. And what happens is there's actually evidence to support this, that when people start to adopt an approach or did adopt that philosophical position that free will doesn't exist. And as a result, everything is predetermined. And like the, the full broadest argument there would be for, for a more extreme determinist would be that since the big bang or preceding event or events, everything is determined by um, physical causes that could be, if we had sufficient technology, predicted and the future is already predicted and nothing can be changed but that's newtonian physics for you which does not is not reconcilable with modern physics so at least we know that they're wrong on that yeah but like the other thing is like because people are most like the end user of that information is not thinking like they're just thinking about how they make their decisions so as a result there's evidence to show that people who believe that or who are told that in research studies, uh, they end up making worse decisions. And because if you're told that you're not responsible, like that's not helpful. And this is actually something that does kind of worry me a little bit. And, and I, str- I, I struggle with this personally. When, like, when we discuss public health, for example, and we're discussing um, the effects of the environment and you know, we're putting forth um, you know, suggestions that, you know what, we actually would be in favor of like uh, re- um, reformulating certain food products and stuff like that and certain regulations over the food environment so that, you know, it, it leads to better public health. But again, if you, if you take all of those things to their end conclusion, you do end up in that position, like you're saying, of, of kind of like slavery to some degree because everything is essentially controlled for you. Um, and you also end up in a position where you actually erode, if, 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 that's, if that's the general public narrative, for example, that the behavior of individuals is the result of uh, solely their environment, then you end up actually eroding any sense of personal responsibility, which personally I don't think is actually a good thing. So I think there's, there's a dialectic that needs to um, be had there that I think is, is very difficult for the, for a person who's actually switched on. Like, I think it's much easier to adopt a perspective of, Oh yeah, everything should be, we should just control um, all of the food supply um, and all of the environmental conditions until people are satisfied. Um, and it's much, and it's also easier to hold a position that no, absolutely no regulation. Everyone should be free all the time. I think they're easy positions to hold because you'll find people in those camps. But I think personally, I, I struggle on different issues with, with where I stop on either end of the spectrum. I'm sure you're the same. Yeah. Like the, the crime one is an interesting one as well, especially because there's so many avenues you can go down when you start trying to get into this, especially if you start falling into a doctrine of either biological or environmental determinism, yeah. right? Like if you fall down either of those doctrines or just say determinism, whatever flavor of that you like, right? You just say free will doesn't exist. This person is a criminal because of their biology, because they have 
X gene or whatever, right? Or because they grew up in Y environment, right? Um, like you might, as an, an individual that is actually concerned about helping society move forward or, you know, I don't know, you want to help these individuals and you're like, oh, they're just a victim of their circumstances, right? Um, and this is something that uh, Christianity tried to fix by saying that we all have a spark of divinity in us. So it's like, oh, we're all like, you know, children of God or whatever. So it's like, oh, like we're all good people. Like we still think that about children, even though it's provably false, right? Children are not born innocent or, you know, not born good, you know, like it's provably false. Like there's evil children out there, <laughs> right? But we have to, we have to act as if all children are good. All children are like innocent and, you know, there's a spark of the divine in them, right? Um, but it's the criminal one is interesting because it start, you start to, to answer that question and start thinking through, like you might as a solution to that be like, oh, we need to focus on more rehabilitation for this person. You know, it's just their environment that shaped them or it's their genes that shaped them, especially the, the, the biological determinists for this one, right? Like, that's fine. You're a nice person. You think that you could help that with rehabilitation. I can guarantee you right now, there's people like me who would be like, oh, there's something wrong with their genes that this could now pollute the rest of the gene pool right so if these are bad people and this badness was caused by these genes we need to eradicate those genes from the gene pool and now all of a sudden you've got fucking genocide right and you were just trying to be a good person you were like oh it's all biologically determined we need to rehabilitate these individuals and that was fine while like your political party or your ideology was in in power but now the the opposition is in power and they're like whoa you decided you said it was biologically determined we're now doing sweeping genetic tests on the population to find x gene and everyone we find with x gene we're fucking eradicating them because you just said that all aggression is caused by this gene or all violence or all whatever is caused by this you know and that's that's a hard hard thing to you know fully think through your actions right um so determinism is a real it's a hard thing to get to grips with, and I'm glad I don't believe it. <laughs> um, but it is something that you have to think about because your environment is shaping you. You know, like you are not completely immune to the impact of the environment on you. And as a result, if you just ignore that and think it's all free will, like that's fine. You might be feel more empowered. But if you just completely resign yourself to oh, this is all just the environment that's causing me to do this. I'm just a victim of the environment. Like you lose all your power, right? And while it sounds more beneficial to be like, oh, it's all just free will because that makes you more empowered. Like it kind of leaves out a lot of the nuance and your ability to actually understand other people's plight, other people's lives. So like you can't go either side of that you can't just say like oh it's all free will bro like just no regulations or no you know whatever um like it's just hard and this is this is something that like you can never know the unintended consequences of the actions that you take for example like we would probably be an advocate of a sugar tax right in terms of like i actually am an advocate of tax of tax in most circumstances i think it's a disincentive but that's actually, it's actually really interesting why we brought in taxes because taxes are actually meant to be an incentive to work. Like the way modern monetary policy or rather I should say modern fiscal policy 
now modern monetary policy goes like taxes are there to encourage you to work right even though that's completely flies in the face of anyone who actually pays taxes like you would think you would work harder if you didn't have to pay taxes you know um but that's the way modern monetary policy works and again like i'm not an advocate of it but that's the way it works and um, like you just need to look up how they actually print money how they actually create money you'll understand what i'm saying but anyway that's a, that's a side tangent but anyway i think we would both probably be an advocate of a sugar tax i think it would be a good idea in most cases however like you have to deal with the unintended consequences of that um and it's kind of like we'll call it a butterfly effect because now everyone with pku what the phenol keto what's it you know, uh, yeah, exactly. I just can't speak because I'm actually stupid. Um, like all those individuals now find it harder if you bring in a sugar tax to eat because all these people start reformulating their, their brands. So this person with PKU, they're in the position where they're like, Oh, I used to be able to drink X drink, but now all of a sudden it contains a source of phenylalanine or, you know, they, they changed the things to not have sugars in it. And, you know, they brought in like, I don't know, aspartame or something. And now all of a sudden, you're fucking over all these people with PKU, you know? And it's like, you thought you were doing better for society, but now you just made life harder for these people with a rare disease. You know, when I say rare, it's, not, it's relatively rare disease, but, you know, and that's, you can never fix things so in such a way that everything is good. And that's just something that you have to, to deal with as a, someone trying to make decisions, as someone trying to, live your own life but also especially as someone trying to make public policy like if you're listening to this and you're like oh i'm actually going to advocate for i don't know a sugar tax for example they're doing a a referendum on it or whatever right and you have a mate who has pku you know it's like does does his uh does his uh free will uh, allow him to now live in that society now that you know the environment has completely changed and it makes it incredibly difficult for him to live uh, a non-life-threatening life <laughs> you know like that's that's just something that you have to to deal with and it's messy and like that's why i said at the start of this like we don't have all the answers i just wanted to bring this episode to light and start thinking through these different things to be like like if we're going to be thinking about nutrition and how to overcome the obesity epidemic and how to, you know, make the world a better place, a healthier place for everyone. Um, like the choices we make and the way we conceptualize this stuff, it's just hard. You know, it's, it's just, you're not going to have all the answers and you're going to make mistakes. And that's both at an individual level and a society level. But hopefully I would like to think that we're slowly, slowly moving towards progress because um, humanity has always done that in terms of they might create a, an issue, but they usually find a way to fix that issue in the end of it all, you know? You're very optimistic. I love it. I'm a very optimistic person. I think everything's fucking great. <sighs> anyway, I think that covers everything we want to discuss in this podcast and more, to be honest. Um, and and yeah, I think there's there's things in there to to think about. I think there are certain things that can maybe make you more empathetic, which can be generally a good thing. Like if you have an appreciation for the fact that maybe some of these neurobiological variables might vary between you and someone else, you might, you can appreciate that maybe the environment that you were exposed to might be different to someone else. And maybe the 
excuse me, economic conditions and psychosocial factors in someone else's life might also be different to your own life, then if we appreciate that all of those things affect decision-making and behavior as a result, then we can, you know, not look at someone in a queue and say, oh, look at that fat person queuing up for food. Like, what are they doing or whatever, you know? Because um, that, that still does happen most of, or sometimes, you know, the vast majority of the people that listen to this podcast, I'm sure, have a little bit more empathy and understand that these things are complex, you know? Um, but on the other side of things, I think there's also that risk that we discuss where we completely erode uh, any sense of, of personal responsibility um, and that self-conscious, which I don't think is um, very good because you're playing God at that point. And <laughs> I don't think uh, I would trust uh, people in power to um, play God. So anyway, that's that's the, the podcast. I don't have anything else. I just have one last thing to say, and it actually goes back to you interpreting Genesis earlier on as if you're Jordan Peterson or something. Um, <laughs> to uh, go on to a more recent scholar than the people who wrote the Bible, uh, like Nietzsche, right? Or however you want to say his name. Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Uh, you're, you speak German, I don't. So you tell me. Um, well, Jordan Peterson says the same thing as you, so. Yeah, but he's North American, like Canadian. Like they say niche as well. Or what do they say? Niche. Yeah, niche instead of niche. So like, I don't know. I mean, they, they sound like very similar words. So I wouldn't trust any of their sayings. Um, but anyway, like, you know, like we have killed God, you know, and niche or however the fuck you want to say it. Um, you know, basically said that in to signify that we need to become gods ourselves. Right. And I think that kind of nicely wraps up this um podcast because we don't want to kill god we don't want to kill free will right because god supposedly gave us free will um we don't want to kill god without actually becoming gods ourselves, right because we know like if you disempower yourself the more you feel out of control with your ability to you know regulate your own health the ability to make decisions regarding your health like we know that's disempowering and we know that leads to you know increases in mortality um increases in like heart attacks increases in depression increases in anxiety you know all those kind of things like we know that that occurs in response to feelings of helplessness or hopelessness and not having control over your life right so with that in mind the way you can become a god around this stuff right is and again we can say it's like regaining free will if you will um like first of all you need to learn to have a better relationship with food right like you actually need to interpret the feelings emotions etc that you have around food and understand the different triggers the different things that are influencing you right like you don't have full control over your environment however you have more control over yourself than you think like if you notice that certain foods you know, make you emotional or, you know, or you are emotional and then you eat certain foods. Like you can still address that kind of stuff and gain more control over your diet, gain more control over yourself by just understanding yourself more, right? And again, that maybe you need to get a coach for that. Maybe you need to go to therapy for that. I don't know. Like, I don't know your situation, but that leads to a more empowered position, right? 
having a better relationship with yourself and having a better relationship with food, right? But also on top of that, you need to learn how to craft a diet that actually works for you. Like I said at the, the start of this, like all diets work in a lab setting, you know, when we, when we uh, fundamentally obey like thermodynamics, you know? So like I can tell you right now, you want to lose weight, calorie deficit, right? Now that's not helpful because that doesn't tell you how to make the diet work for you, but that's the, the fundamentals of it. You need to eat less calories than you burn, right? However, we need to create a diet, create a diet that is sustainable for you and that actually works with your lifestyle, what you want to achieve, the foods that you enjoy, the social occasions that you want to interact with, like all those kind of things. And again, the more you understand about the diet, the more you are empowered through education, the more you have a sense of having more free will, you know, because you can make better choices and they're conscious choices because you're like, oh, I understand why I should or shouldn't choose these foods because I understand nutrition fundamentally and I understand how to make nutrition work for me, you know? So all of a sudden you start regaining more free will, we'll call it, right? You also have control over, we'll say exercising. You can do that in a way that leads you to be more in control of your destiny because you can be stronger, you can be fitter, you can be whatever, right? And again, that is hard because your environment may be working against you in that regard in terms of there's no exercise facilities around you, etc. And you don't have the time, whatever. But exercising is fundamental to being a human. And it tends to, once your physical capacity expands, your, I'm going to say cognitive, no, it's not cognitive is the wrong word. Your self-capacity expands, right? In terms of, you know, like if you feel stronger because you're getting stronger in the gym, like you're more empowered, you feel stronger and you can take on other things. You know, they're, like we said earlier on, like they're intrinsically linked. Like what are you? It's not like you can separate your brain or your thoughts from your physical being. Like, and the way I always conceptualize this is like people who are, have low cardiorespiratory fitness, right? Like your thoughts are actually directly influenced by that. You know, like you get fatigued or easier, you know, like you can't have, uh, you don't have the endurance to have long thought sessions because you're not actually fit. Like you get fatigued. You don't have that ability to actually, I'm going to say buffer acidosis. If you want to bring it down to like a biochemical level, you know, like you don't have that ability. You don't have that endurance because you're not cardiorespiratory fit or cardiovascularly fit, I should say. Um, so like getting fitter all of a sudden makes you think clearer and also just movement itself. It does a lot of stuff like chemically in the brain as well, chemically around the body that actually allows you to think better. Um, like you can think of this as well. Like, you know, people go on a walk and they're like, Oh, I have my best ideas when I'm in motion and whatever. It's like, yeah, your, your body was designed. Like movement came before thought. It came before lower level thought as like, you know, unconscious thought. And it definitely came before like conscious thought. So like, exercise or movement is fundamental to life, right? So you need to be moving, right? You can get more empowerment through that, but also in terms of this, and like we've, we've talked a few times about religion in this and it's kind of, that was one of the benefits of religion. And um, this is, you know, engaging with a community that is also focused on the same goals as you, right? Like that's something that is really beneficial um, and is really empowering. Like if you know that you have a support network around you and you have a community that are also out, they're rooting for you and want to help you so much easier to be successful, so much easier to be able to execute more free will, or at least have the society around you stopping you from 
not executing the free will that you want. Basically what I'm saying is like, they will influence you in a positive direction. Even if we want, even if that means you actually have less free will in and of itself, you know, like you're basically hacking yourself by setting the environment up to make it easier for you, which brings me to the next one, which is like, you can effectively do the same thing that like advertisers or marketing campaigns or whatever do, and you can make the environment more conducive to you being healthy, you losing weight or whatever it is that you want to do. Like you can influence that. Like humans have been influencing the environment for eons. You know, that's what we do. Right. So like you can use that to your advantage where possible. Like it's obviously not possible for you to, you know, change the, the bus signs or change the ads on TV or whatever, but like you can still make the environment more conducive. Like you can choose not to watch the TV and not be exposed to those or like get an ad blocker for YouTube or whatever it is, you know, and like you can choose to do those things. And all of a sudden, even though you are not actually gaining more free will, you're just gaining less exposure to things that are deviating you from the free will that you want to execute. Right. Um, and this also comes down to like, you know, automating or making unconscious good and healthy habits. You know, the more you can not have to think about these consciously, the more they actually become easy to do. And the more you are able to stick to them and actually get results because you don't have to use free will to do these things. It's like, oh no, that's just what I do. You know, I'll eat vegetables. Yeah, that's just what I do. Like that's not a, a free will conscious choice. It's just that's just part of my day. You know, it's like, that's, that's the environment. I have to do that, you know, like stuff like that. You can still automate that. And as a result, you can feel like you have more free will or you can use the lack of free will or determinism to your advantage. Right. And finally on that, like planning ahead, like we have control over our destiny, but you have to know where you're going. Like steering a ship in the dark with no compass, with no stars, with nothing like you're going to run across rocks, you know, like you're going to sink the ship, you know, like you have to have a clear plan of action. You have to have a path if you're to, in order to stay on the path, you know? Um, so like plan ahead, whether that means like planning out your meals, planning out your day, what's it going to look like? What, who do you actually want to be? All that kind of stuff. Like actually sit down and plan that stuff out, like consistently in the literature. Like that's like the one thing that uh, psychology, like across the board, all of the different methods of psychology that they'll help you in therapy with or whatever, they're like planning. Yes, planning is good. You know, like that's, they'll all say that regardless of what therapy modalities they use. So like use that to your advantage, plan ahead, make a plan, stick to the plan. Don't be adherent to the plan if you need to be more flexible with it, but you need to have at least a rough idea of what you are working towards. Anyway, that's all I really have to say on this vaguely coherent um, discussion of free will and neurobiology of obesity, even though we actually didn't really talk too much about the, the actual neurobiology stuff. But as I said at the start, like there's kind of less interesting stuff, unless you're like a, a science nerd. Like, I know I like to like, I like to read that stuff, even though I think neuroscience is a bit fake. Um, like it's interesting stuff, you know? So anyway, Gary, do you have any final words? And if not, where can people find us? Yeah, so it's five past nine on a Sunday night. I haven't had my dinner and I'm on placement in the morning. So I'm going to be quick. <laughs> but um, guys, 
as you know, we do have coaching spaces available. So if you'd like to work with us and take this whole decision-making process out of it, hand over a little bit of the reins to us for a while. Let us guide you a little bit of hand-holding then gradually let you go into the future managing your own nutrition, your training, etc. Um, you can work with us. So just you can inquire below. DM any of us to discuss, myself, Patty, Brian, um, and we'd be happy to give you more info. Uh, we do also have an education site, The Coach's Corner. If you're a coach, get in there, get involved. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, Triage Method newsletter, get involved, and also follow our social media pages. Okay, so Triage Method on Instagram, Facebook, um, they're the main ones. Subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. And also check us out on our own Instagrams. We put out content that isn't necessarily on the triage page. So and myself, Skinny Gaz, Patty at The Real, Patty Farrell, and Brian at Brian O'Hangasa. Um, you'll get lots of additional nuggets throughout the week uh, by following our pages. So uh, there are the main things. That's it. Yes, I have nothing else to say. Hope everyone enjoyed this. And as always, all of your shares on social media and you know, telling your friends, etc., really does help the podcast. So uh, thank you for that. Anyway, peace out. Peace out.